Life can only truly be captured via the means of death. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, and I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 16 through 39. Uh, Matthew is perhaps my favourite book of the Bible, so I'm particularly excited about uh, this text. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 39. Uh, This is what it says. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. There is a saying, a very old saying, When the pupil is ready, the master shall appear. I first heard those words in one of my favourite films of all time, the 1998 classic, The Mask of Zorro. I've watched this film many times. I can still remember going to see it with my dad at the cinemas, and upon request, I can still quote many of my favourite scenes uh, from this particular film. In this, uh, in this film, Anthony Hopkins plays an ageing Zorro, and he's looking for someone to take his place, to raise up a next generation Zorro, someone who will don the mask, take up their sword and defend the tyrannised commoners of California. 
And upon finding a suitable candidate, the young Alejandro Morietta, he he offers to train this young man. You see, young Alejandro was about to move towards a fight that he was not ready for. And so he pulls him away from this fight and says, let me teach you how to move, how to fight, how to think, how to take your revenge with honour and live to celebrate it. And let me tell you, this scene and the training scenes that follow give me goosebumps. <laughs> what can I say? I, this motive of a master taking an apprentice under their wing to train them for battle just gets me right in the feels. I, th- I think if you look at a lot of my favourite films, this motif appears time and time again, whether it's Daniel San sitting under the karate expertise of Mr. Miyagi or Luke Skywalker learning under Yoda on the Dagobah system. Whenever there's a good master and apprentice motif, uh, what can I say? It gets me every time. It's in a lot of my favourite films. But as we come to the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we find the 12 disciples undergoing an apprenticeship of their own in the seminary of Jesus Christ. And today's lesson is realistic ministry expectations and death to self. You see, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to have some naive or starry-eyed view of Christian ministry and Christian discipleship. In training up these 12 men, he he doesn't subscribe to sugarcoating tactics. He wants his disciples to know precisely what it is that they'll be up against as they step out into a hostile world to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But tragically, in the 21st century Western church, we probably don't consider the words of Matthew 10 often enough, do we? I think we can do one of two things. We can either subscribe to a domesticated Diet Coke view of discipleship that effectively says, look, I know Jesus has purchased my freedom, but I really don't want to offend or pester anyone, so let's just take it easy, stay out of trouble, and be nice. Or... For those of us who do embrace the Great Commission as a personal assignment and we recognize that there is work to be done, sometimes we can just find ourselves romanticizing Christian ministry. Well, we we go to the conferences, we buy the t-shirts and we dream about church planting and overseas missions like there'll be a holiday in the Bahamas. D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, Sometimes those whose zeal for mission is informed less by knowledge than by enthusiasm tell us that there is a whole world out there waiting to hear the gospel. If by waiting to hear the gospel they really mean needing to hear the gospel, then of course they are right. But only rarely are people waiting to hear the gospel, in the sense that they are eager to hear the gospel. Far more common is it to find genuine receptivity among a subset of the broader society, coupled with indifference or opposition from the masses. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus first called his disciples, he issues them with that sublime statement that catches me every time I read it. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in Matthew chapter 10, what we have is Jesus preparing them in some some sense for their first fishing trip. This is the first time they were going to go out to be fishers of men. And so today, as we find ourselves as a kind of fly on the wall during this master and apprentice lesson, missionary discourse from Jesus, let's take a closer look at precisely what Jesus says we're going to be up against. And the first thing he says we'll be up against, or the first thing we can expect, is persecution and malignment. Let's look at verses 16 and 18 to 18 again. This is what it says. Behold... I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. We often speak of Jesus as our good shepherd, and rightly so. I mean, our kids in Project Kids at the moment are learning about the I am statements of Job of, of, in the book of John, of which one is I am the good shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. Yes and amen to all of that. But here the shepherding analogy takes a new shape, doesn't it? Instead of being led by still waters, we're told that Jesus sends his disciples out as sheep in the midst of wolves. At first glance, it, it kind of sounds like some pretty negligent shepherding, right? I mean, shepherding that seems to contradict what we read in John 10 and Psalm 23. But the point that Jesus is making is this. Although he tenderly loves and cares for his sheep, they were about to enter a hostile world, and in that world, they would be utterly defenseless. In case you were wondering, sheep don't put up much of a fight against wolves. Um, in a book on pastoral ministry, I stumbled upon uh, this quote by Philip Keller. He's a, he was a shepherd and an agricultural researcher, and he describes how predators attack sheep. Look what he says. He says, often in blind fear or stupid unawareness, they will stand rooted to the spot, watching their companions being cut to shreds. The predator will pounce upon one, then another of the flock, raking and tearing them with tooth and claw. Meanwhile, the other sheep may act as if they did not even hear or recognize the carnage going on around them. It is though they were totally oblivious to the peril of their own precarious position. Completely and utterly defenseless and Jesus says this is where I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves and I think we need to be reminded of this don't we because often we prefer to think of ourselves not as sheep in the midst of wolves but rams in the midst of wolves you know rams with a big set of horns that are ready to pound their opponents uh, and give them what's coming to them if they try and oppress us right And historically, the temptation has always been for the church to take up arms and defend herself against her opponents. It began in Gethsemane with Peter severing off the ear of the high priest's servant. And it's popped up its ugly head in various ways throughout the history of the church. I'm currently reading a biography on Martin Luther. I've got about 100 pages to go, and let me tell you, I'm I'm loving it. Can't put the thing down. But this week, I read about the tragedies of a man by the name of Thomas Munzer. And the Peasants' War. You see, Luther was reforming the church, but he was doing so with gentleness and with a considerable degree of pastoral tact. He knew that it would take time for people to get used to some of the changes he was making. For example, he showed the utmost grace to people as they learnt that it was okay for them to take both components of communion. Formerly, they were only ever given the bread for fear of spilling the blood. But as he um, provided both elements to them, he took time. But Thomas Munzer was not so gentle. And in an evil and horribly misguided manner, he stirred up thousands of peasants across Germany, peasants who were tired of oppression, and he led them into a bloodthirsty combat against the nobles. In one such attack, they forced two dozen noblemen and their servants to run the gauntlet while they stabbed them with lances. And this was all done in the name of Christianity. 
You see, too often we've forgotten the words of the Apostle Paul, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. Jesus says we are to be like sheep. And yet having said all of that, Jesus doesn't leave us without instruction. Like he throws us out into the wolves and then says nothing else. He, he says, be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. So we're sheep, serpents and doves this morning, right? So what exactly does that mean? If you're merely dove-like or you're, you're merely innocent, you're, you're probably susceptible to becoming or behaving naive and oblivious, right? Uh, Kind of much like the defenseless sheep we just read about, perhaps you'll unnecessarily stumble your way into persecution you could have otherwise avoided, right? It's the kind of naivety that would miss Jesus' wise instruction there in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Sometimes fleeing is okay. We also need to be wise. But if you're merely wise and lacking innocence... Perhaps your supposed wisdom will just descend into a kind of evasiveness and fear. And you won't face up to any kind of persecution at all under the name of wisdom. As one commentator put it, we need to be snake smart, but not snake sneaky. There is here, like many places in scripture, a tension to live between. And it really is a case-by-case decision whether someone should withdraw from or withstand their hostile context. I mentioned I'm reading a biography on Martin Luther. Seriously, one of the most breathtaking reads of my life. After being, after being um, severely ostracised and threatened after the Diet of Worms, which was the famous council where Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. Those closest to him, some of his dearest friends and those who advised him, thought that the wisest option at this point in time, given all the hostility, was to actually stage a kidnapping, make it look like Luther had been abducted and killed um, so that the hostility would stop. That's uh, what they did. And so um, when, in fact, Luther was actually just hidden away in the Wartburg Castle for 10 months. Most people uh, around Germany and throughout the European world thought he had died. But he was disguised as a knight um, for 10 months. And only a handful of people knew he was still alive. Now, I think Luther had the balance right. Luther was innocent as a dove. He was very ready to die for his faith. That's very clear from his writings. And yet, he was also as wise as a serpent. He took the counsel of those closest to him and decided to go and withdraw for 10 months. And it's interesting that God used that period where he translated the New Testament into vernacular German to put the word of God into the hands of laymen. Wise as a serpent, yet innocent as a dove. We've got to get the tension right. Jesus continues in verses 17 and 18. He says, beware of men. Sounds like something from Lord of the Rings, right? (laughs) Beware of men. Men are weak. It is because of men the ring survives. We digress. Now he says, beware of men. They will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Now synagogues were kind of the center of Jewish religious life in the first century. And in addition to them being places of worship, they also played host to their own judicial procedures, including the administration of their own floggings. 
Now, this was not the Roman flogging that Jesus received with a whip that was basically made of shrapnel. No, this was a, this was a Jewish flogging where they were struck with a four-thong leather whip. In Deuteronomy 25, we read that the maximum penalty that someone could receive was 40 strokes. But for fear of a miscount, the common punishment in Jesus' day was 39. And Jesus says, as my disciple, expect to be the victim of such punishment. For the Apostle Paul, you remember, he received this punishment on five different occasions. Can you imagine the keloid scarring? To see the Apostle Paul's shirt removed, it would have been quite ghastly. Now, what's interesting is that if we read the parallel account in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10, there's actually no evidence at all that on this first fishing trip, while Jesus was still with them, that any of the disciples here were flogged. The report sounds all positive. If you look at it in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, this is them returning from their trip. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It was a positive report from them after their first trip. Now, it's a little bit of an argument from silence, but there's actually no evidence that during this first, trip, this first fishing trip that any of them were persecuted. I can imagine the disciples talking amongst themselves. Hey, Thomas, like, how'd your trip go? Did, did you get flogged? Were, were you persecuted at all? No, not me. I mean, I gave a few demons a good flogging, but no, I'm fine, actually. I didn't cop any flack at all. I'm probably thinking, man, for a... Conquering king, Jesus is a bit pessimistic at times. I think he got that one wrong. My trip was fine. But little did they know the trip that they had just been on was just a casual afternoon throwing a line in off a jetty. And it wasn't until after Pentecost that they would do some serious deep sea fishing and these prophecies would be fulfilled. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that out of jealousy, the apostles were arrested and told to stop preaching about Jesus. Well, an angel of the Lord broke them out of prison by night and they went back to doing exactly what they were doing, preaching about Jesus. And the religious leaders were perplexed. They said, we told you not to preach Jesus. And they said, well, we must obey God rather than men. And look what we read in Acts 5, 40 to 42. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them. That is synagogue flogging. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I can just imagine that as they suffered this scourging, as the whips came down on their back, as the Jewish officials, as this was happening, they would actually read out scriptures while this was being administered. Sounds quite patronising, to be honest. I can imagine the only words they would have really been hearing were the words of their Lord resonating in their minds. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. But have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, a.k.a. don't stop preaching. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both both soul and body in hell. 
You see, in Matthew chapter 10, although Jesus is sending them on a relatively mild, non-hostile assignment throughout Palestine, he's giving them the marching orders that will inform their ministry expectations until long after the resurrection and the ascension. Look at what he says next. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Again, this didn't happen on this first trip. For sheer virtue of the fact that at this point in redemptive history, their trip was ethnically restricted. Look at what we read earlier in uh, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, encountering the hostility of Gentile governors and kings wouldn't happen until after Pentecost. But when they finally did encounter it, the apostles were either beheaded speared to death or crucified. And Jesus says this is normal and this is expected. Why? Why is this normal and why is this expected? Because it happened to Jesus first. Verses 24 through 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now you might only recognize the name Beelzebul from the song Bohemian Rhapsody, but in Jesus' day this was perhaps the most insulting thing that you could say to someone. In short, you're effectively saying that they are Satan or at the very least that they're in league with him. Later in Matthew 12, we read just that. Jesus was called Satan. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Project Church, listen, although it's not pleasant... There is a sense in which it is completely normal that we Christians are labelled as evil, judgmental, intolerant bigots. There's a sense in which it's quite normal. We are not above our master. If they went after the master of the house, you better believe they're going to go after the members of the house. Teenagers, um, just allow me to gently burst your bubble for a moment you're probably not going to be numbered amongst the cool kids. I think you're really cool. Don't get me wrong. But by the world's standards, you probably won't be. You're not cool. You're a Christian. It's normal for you to have people at school who may criticise you for your faith from time to time. Jesus said it would happen because it happened to him first. J.C. Ryle put it this way. If we let the world alone, it will probably let us alone. But if we try to do it spiritual good, it will hate us as it did our master. Now, before we move on, uh, allow me a brief excursion into some eschatology. What can I say? It's in the text. My hands were tied. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does that mean? 
When we hear the phrase, before the Son of Man comes, we typically want to jump straight into the DeLorean and go back to the future and assume that the text is speaking about the second coming, right? That day when Jesus will return, raise the dead, destroy the man of lawlessness and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, right? But think about what that would mean for a moment, okay? Jesus would then be saying, you, that is to say you, the 12 apostles, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the second coming, Sounds a bit odd, right? I mean, firstly, why would it take you more than 2,000 years to make your way through all the towns, towns of Israel? That's, that's pretty slow going. You might want to rethink your strategy, right? Secondly, the apostles are all dead. So by virtue of their expiry, they won't be ministering in Israel just prior to the second coming. So what then does this coming of the Son of Man mean? Well, various interpretations have been proposed, but I'll just tell you my own conclusion. I'm convinced he's saying that these 12 apostles will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment on Israel in the year AD 70. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the history, in AD 70, about 40 years or so after Jesus said these words, the Roman army sacked Jerusalem and leveled the temple to the ground. And I'm personally persuaded that this moment in history was a sign from God that he was taking vengeance on the very nation that rejected and executed its own Messiah. So he says to his disciples, right, if, if you get persecuted in one town, flee to the next because you've only got about a 35 to 40 year window to evangelize the lost sheep of Israel, after which time, given their nationwide rejection of me, I will come in judgment and smash their temple to the ground. And you might say, Jaden, okay, is there any biblical evidence for this? I'm glad you asked. Look at Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. This is just after Jesus has pronounced woes on the Jewish leaders and called Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, okay, they're they're admiring the architecture. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That happened in AD 70. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Here ends the eschatological excursion. So we can expect persecution and malignment. But in addition, Jesus says we can expect disruption within families. Verses 34 through 37. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now sometimes when... People are converted to Christianity and they embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They play host to a particularly high dose of zeal and enthusiasm, and rightly so. And though it's well intended, this zeal and enthusiasm is often paired with a slight lack of discernment, and it has led to tension within families that perhaps could have otherwise been avoided, right? Sometimes in our eagerness to evangelize our families and see them come to faith, we've been guilty of serving up some pretty abrupt and awkward and even brash evangelism, right? Um, And our families are, rightly so, a bit put off by us. 
And I'm sure there would be people in this room who bear the scars of such antics. Right? But Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about legitimate, malicious hostility between family members. Even immediate family members. Such that it may even result in family members handing each other over to die. Now, that may not happen here in Toowoomba, at least not to my knowledge, but this is common, for example, among our brothers and sisters in Christ who are converted out of Islam. If they're not killed directly by their family, they are at least dobbed in by them. I read this week of a Jewish family whose son converted to Christianity. They were so enraged that they not only disowned him, they held a funeral for him just to show the degree of their disowning. And again, Jesus says this is normal and to be expected. Now, let's be clear. This is not a license for husbands to go gallivanting across the globe, preaching the gospel at the expense of neglecting the welfare of their families. Unfortunately, that has happened before. Following Jesus is radical, but it's not ruthless. But Jesus is saying that with respect to your ultimate loyalty and devotion, Christ and his kingdom come first. George Eldon Ladd put it this way. When a human relationship stands in the way of the demand of God's kingdom, there can be but one choice. If the demand of the kingdom has confronted you, but your father or your mother or even your husband or your wife says, no, I will not have it, you cannot follow Christ and have my affection, then there is only one decision which can be made for God and his kingdom. Even if human affection and family ties are shattered, the claims of God's kingdom have priority. Now, at this point, you might say, Jaden, you are killing me here. You're telling me I can expect persecution, malignment, and disruption within the family, and possibly even a painful death. How am I going to do that? That's too much. If I was faced with any of that sometime later this week, I'd probably just drop the ball and run. I'm not strong enough. Listen. I hear you this morning. These words from our Lord are not easy. The the gravity of this text has been wrecking me all all week long as I've prepared. But the question that must be asked is, how would Jesus respond to such worries? How would Jesus counsel someone who feels as though they would drop the ball and run in the face of adversity? He's going to respond in two ways in Matthew chapter 10. Firstly, verse 38 and 39. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The thrust of what he is saying is this. Which life are you trying to grasp hold of? Are you you holding on to your life that exists, exists now in this present evil age Or are you eagerly anticipating the life that you will have in the age to come? Which one are you hanging on to? Listen, I know I harp on about eschatology a fair bit, but I am personally convinced that so many of our troubles in Christianity are bound up with our failure to recognize the fact that this is not our home. We suffer what Paul Tripp calls eternity amnesia. Christianity is a forward-looking religion. And if we're going to live with Jesus in the future, we need to die to self in the present. 
People should be able to look at Christians in their witness, in their boldness, in their sacrificial service and go, oh, look, dead man walking. You see, the reason that the apostles and so many other martyrs throughout church history were able to face the most atrocious persecution, torture and death is because in a spiritual sense, they were already dead. Long before the persecution arrived, they had resolved that they had decided to follow Jesus and there truly was no turning back. Matthew Henry put it well. They are best prepared for the life to come that sit most loose to this present life. So that's the first way Jesus responds to our worries. But there's a second. Verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The last thing that we can expect, and that is normal, is the help of our Sovereign Father. The point that Jesus is making here is simple. Whenever a sparrow falls to the ground and dies, God knows about it. Seems like a trivial detail on planet Earth, but he knows about it. If you asked him to give you the stats on how many hairs are on your head, he could do so instantly. Now, personally, I wouldn't be too keen to know how many grey hairs are on my head at the tender age of 31. But nonetheless, if asked, he could provide me with that number. All that to say, whatever hostile circumstances you may find yourself in, whether it's at work, at school, during a church plant or on a foreign missions field, God knows about it. He is superintending it. He is sovereign over it. And he sent you into it as a sheep in the midst of wolves. And he promises that he will ultimately bring it about for your good. But in addition to this reminder of God's sovereignty, we're also told that he is our very present help. Verses 19 to 20 are incredible. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. He's saying... If you ever find yourself dragged before a governor or a king or some other hostile situation where the heat dial gets turned up, you better believe he's going to extend to you in that hour an additional dose of enabling grace. And if you don't think you're strong enough, you're right. You're not. But in that hour, you would be. He would provide you that grace in the moment. If you ever find yourself here, you will receive strength and speech beyond anything else you would otherwise be able to conjure up on your own. You don't think you're strong enough? It's okay, you're not. But Jesus says, stay close to me and I promise I will walk you through it. And there are some amazing examples of this in the history of the church. Even young children thrown into a coliseum will say things that would blow your mind. Verses 19 to 20 have come true on the lips of young children. Look at how Luke puts it in his gospel. I love this. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's what he will offer us. Why doesn't the band come and join me? 
I want to finish this morning with a reading from Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24, which encapsulates this death to self, heart disposition we've been talking about from the lips of the Apostle Paul. This is what he said. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is the substance of our Christian witness? If you boil it down, what, what is its substance? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. God has lavished his grace upon us eminently by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, that we might live with him for eternity, even though we didn't deserve it. And in a joyful, dead-to-self response, we are called to share that same good news of grace wherever the Lord may send us. So Project Church, let's take up our cross.